Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, this is Matt Hannon. What you're listening to here is the unedited recording of an event recorded recently, organised by the University of Edinburgh and the British Institute of Energy Economics on the topic of so-called green layers, which we've been given permission to share with you. It sits alongside our regular episode this week, which is a chat about all these issues with myself, Fraser Stewart, and our guest, Magnus Davidson, sitting alongside this full unedited recording in your podcast player. For the extremely committed amongst you, this is the recorded event in full. Thank you so much to you and the Business School for hosting us. Uh, Thank you also to Matt Hannon, who is one of the uh, executive committee of the BIEE. He is an academic at the University of Strathclyde, um, but has very bravely come across here this evening. Um, Matt doesn't just do this, he also does the Local Zero podcast Uh, And next week for the Local Zero podcast, they're going to be talking about this theme and want to be using some of the excerpts from this this evening's discussion uh, in order to to uh, enliven that debate. So uh, if you have issues about anything which you may say being included in that, please do have a word with Matt afterwards. Uh, As Aidan said, that I'm an honorary professor here in the business school. My background before that was in politics. I was in politics for 20 years. Um, I graduated from the business school 40 years ago. It wasn't called a business school at that point, and it didn't look anything like this. Um, and then when I was left uh, Parliament, the university gave me the honour of being an honorary professor. Some of the people who taught me were still here, who were always mystified how I'd got a degree at all, and were completely <laughs> perplexed that I should come back in some sort of honorary role. Um, but having been Minister for Energy and Climate Change, that it was a particular honour and privilege to be able to in, get involved in some of these uh, issues with the university. Uh, and I also at that time became president of the British Institute of Energy Economics, uh, which brings together groups of academics, of people from business, of people from the wider community, uh, who have an interest in energy and climate change and runs a programme of events throughout the years. Uh, and what we're keen to do is to ensure that for our Scottish members uh, and to increase our presence in Scotland, uh, that we do events uh, such as this every year as well. So, uh, Matt, thank you to you, and thank you also for coming up with the theme, which I think for tonight is a really relevant discussion point. It's an issue which is going to be gaining importance here. The whole uh, area of carbon markets 
natural cap uh, uh, capital markets are one of the fastest growing markets around. And that's inevitably going to bring pressures in terms of the impact it has on local communities uh, and on land values and land use. And it's to try and address some of those underlying issues and tensions that we wanted to have this evening's discussion. There are all sorts of schemes which are opening up. We're going to have to get used to a whole large new range of acronyms, uh, WCUs, the Woodland Carbon Units, the PIUs, the Pending Issuance Units. Uh, all of these will become common parlance in the course of the next few years as this uh, change in our society moves forward. Uh, but it's also going to change the Scottish landscape. Uh, more of that investment and more of that activity will happen in Scotland than in any other part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and so it's important that we understand the impact of that. Uh, at COP last year, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, said there was $130 trillion of investment ready to go into net zero projects. And one of the areas they're looking at is going to be into the uh, carbon sequestration area and carbon storage. And that the, uh, he has estimated that this could be worth 100 to $150 billion a year as an industry. Uh, and he added to that, he said, the only way we get it right is to have high integrity. So what I think our speakers will be addressing tonight is how do we do this in a way that guarantees that integrity? Uh, Greenpeace, though, would argue that it's better to not have the carbon emissions in the first place. And they have said that it's always better to reduce emissions directly. And carbon dioxide removal should be used at most for a minority of net zero targets and not to offset any activities that can be reasonably avoided. And what we're now seeing is major corporations like Shell and others buying up large tracts of land in Scotland uh, with the intention of planting those up for trees and using them for commercial benefit and for carbon offsets. Uh, that does have impacts on local communities. So what we want to understand is, is it sustainable? And for the problems it creates, how do we address them? Uh, we have a superb panel tonight. Uh, and I'm going to leave them to do most of the talking now. So we'll be starting with Professor Dave Ray, uh, who is Professor of Carbon Management here at the University of Edinburgh and also Executive Director of the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute. Uh, Dave, I'm going to embarrass you by saying he's one of those people who's like a burst of sunshine, um, <laughs> that you always believe when you spend time with Dave that the challenges are a little bit more manageable and we can do it a little bit faster uh, dealing with them than you thought before. He's somebody who brings that positivity to everything that he does. And we'll hear from him in just a moment. Um, then after that, we will hear from Elsa Rabin, who's chairperson for Community Land Scotland and chair of the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust, uh, from Stephen Young, who's head of policy at Scottish Land and Estates, and from Kirsten Jenkins, who's a lecturer here in Energy, Environment and Society. Uh, so, Dave, can I ask you to set the background to the issue and the importance of land use uh, in the fight against climate change, and what, is, what do you feel in this area is being done well and what's being done less well? Well, th thank you, Charles, and thank you, Matt, as well, for, for having me a lot. It's so good to see a lot of you um, familiar faces from three years ago, whatever it was before the pandemic hit. Yeah, so this, this title behind me, um, that kind of encapsulates one of the biggest challenges for me, taking my positive um, side, uh, opportunities for Scotland in terms of realising net, net zero transition, but delivering in terms of a just transition as part of that. Um, I guess one of the, the most important contexts to this that Charles already alluded to is there's a lot of money floating around now. There's quite a lot of 
um, concern, I think, in our rural communities about the risk of that money, meaning farming is displaced, uh, that our communities are hollowed out somewhat for the purposes of climate action, and um, hence us all being here tonight, I guess. I would, I would agree with some of those concerns, uh, and I'll expand on that in a second, but I'd also make the point that land use is critical. In terms of the climate emergency, the biodiversity crisis we are in, we can't just let land use continue in the current um, trajectory. It is a key part of sequestration. It's a key source of emissions, particularly through the agriculture sector, and that's something that all of us um, work on in terms of uh, where we can reduce emissions. Our food is always going to have a carbon footprint, and we are always going to have to eat. So we need to remember that, I think, about land use. But we do need to account for the fact that it, it can be a significantly bigger sink for carbon. So it can store more carbon compared to what it's stored historically. With that in mind, it cannot solve climate change by itself. If we get everything right, if we get every tree in the right place, if we change our diets and we make sure that um, the food production is as efficient as possible, uh, land use is still not going to save us from um, significant additional warming. It might get us a third of the way there. So we cannot ignore it, but we can't just put all of our eggs in the land use basket. Now, one of the contexts to this very recently is COP26 around how we use particularly land-based solutions for climate change internationally and nationally. And COP26, depends who you talk to uh, in terms of whether that was a success, but for carbon geeks uh, like me, it was a success in terms of the rule book, the Paris rule book. That covered, uh, it crosses several articles in the Paris Agreement, but one key one is about carbon trading and how nations, if you are um, basically expanding your woodland or protecting your woodland, for instance, so you've got some kind of carbon benefit, if you sell that carbon benefit to another nation, uh, then that's, that's fine, and, and so that was agreed that that could happen. But actually, if you sell that carbon benefit, then you have to make a compensatory reduction in terms of your carbon budget so that you're not double counting, because the atmosphere is only seeing the reduction once. So we got that agreement, that, that kind of framework internationally, uh, and if you're a business trading internationally uh, through those kind of compliance units, then uh, there's some... There's some robust backbone to that. Where there's still huge uncertainty and this risk is the voluntary sector is, could be one of us paying for a carbon credit, uh, which is um, on one of our farms, you know, and we, we say we're going to plant a tree for you. And uh, that seems all well and good, but actually that is not, that hasn't got the same basis in terms of compensatory reductions. There's a risk of double counting. There's also the risk of uh, the safeguarding around that. So one of the things, uh, I've, I, uh, I had to print these out because I couldn't remember them um, off by heart. Um, it's just, this shows I don't do enough teaching anymore. One of the big precedents for land use and tackling climate change uh, internationally has been reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation. Uh, the UN have invested a lot, many nations have invested a lot in that, and it's been particularly in Global South nations. And one of the things that was very apparent fairly early on in those projects was that you need safeguards. You can't just assume that if you pay for an action to take place, particularly in land use, that it will give the desired outcome in terms of carbon <clears throat> or the desired outcome in terms of society and community. 
So there are six Cancun safeguards, things like is it additional, is it transparent, is it um, uh, consistent with biodiversity targets. But the most important one for me, and one which really does apply here in Scotland in terms of the green layers debate, is the third one, and that is respecting local knowledge and rights. It is thinking about our land use not as a big contiguous mass in Scotland that we can use to sequester carbon, deliver on biodiversity and deliver on food. It needs to do all those things, but actually to think of it as communities, as people who live their livelihoods are on that land, but they're connected. And so actually thinking about that local knowledge and rights like the Cancun safeguards, I think should be the basis of the voluntary carbon sector. Dave, thank you very much. Um, just a, a brief supplementary, if I may, to that, because you're not just sort of talking about this, you're, you're walking the walk as well. You're doing this yourself in the west of Scotland. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and sort of what's motivated you to do that? Yes, I, I think I'm really, I'm mainly a laughing stock for my neighbours, I think. So I have, a, I have a small farm, a sheep farm on the west coast, and um, the sheep are, we rent the land for the local um, sheep farmer. He's, he's brilliant. And... It's been, it's been a great experience because I went in with the, the ambition to just plant loads of trees, sequester lots of carbon, have lots of fun as a carbon geek and measure all the carbon that was being taken up. And then through talking to um, the farmer who grazed his sheep on our land, but all my neighbours uh, and having lots of uh, laughter, um, it became clear that, that that was fine to do that, but actually it was crucial to to have the conversations about how the land was used before, to so understand that, and to talk to particularly the farmer who rents uh, our land in terms of what the, the time scale is. We're planning to remove sheep from certain bits uh, to make sure that that is not going to leave him short of grazing. And so actually working with the community, and, and obviously we, me and my wife have got a real vested interest because these are going to be our neighbours for the rest of our lives. So really alienating them would be a bad idea. But actually... I've learned a huge amount just by talking to them. They really understand how the land has been used, what trees are going to grow well where, who's gone, got it wrong down the road. Um, and actually, in, in the way we're going to use ours, I've gone from thinking, right, no sheep, you know, just get rid of them. It's got to be all about nature. So there are bits of our land where we're going to have to have sheep to graze. We've got some archaeology, which is really hard to keep clear. You know, I'd have to go and mow it and that that would be disastrous. I'd probably damage it with a strimmer. And so we talked to the archaeologist and he said, well, get the farmer to come in, just graze it on a regular basis. So instead of, I've, I have to be honest, I've moved from being quite anti-sheep to being, you know, not pro-sheep, but I could, they are part. <laughs> they are part of our, of, our, of our ecosystem and our human ecosystem in Kintyre, as well as the, the kind of food system. And so it's been really eye-opening. It continues to be, and I still make them all laugh whenever I talk about it. As you are us tonight as well, so thank you. Um, brilliant. Well, let's move on now to Elsa. So Elsa, as I said, uh, is the chairperson for Community Land Scotland and chair of the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust. Um, Elsa, what are the trends which you're seeing in terms <coughs> of the use of land in Scotland for carbon offsetting? Um, what is the appropriate role do you see for communities uh, as this rolls out as a, a new sub programme, a new area of activity? Thanks, Charles, and, and thanks to, to you and Matt for the invitation tonight. Um, as we all know, the Scottish Government's got a legally binding commitment to achieve net zero by 2045 um, and ensure a just transition. 
Um, sometimes there's a bit of a debate about what a just transition is, but we see it as that a fairer distribution of the benefits and costs of the move to net zero, which need to be shared by everybody. Um, and there are policy commitments within Scottish Government that align to that, and those are around social justice, community wealth building, land reform. Um, but the land market in Scotland is still largely unregulated, and it still has a uniquely, Scotland itself still has a uniquely concentrated pattern of land ownership. And that makes delivery of these multiple objectives around just transition to net zero problematic. There's also a range of fiscal levers, so grants and subsidies and tax exemptions, which further exacerbate the barriers to delivery of these objectives. And they have really serious unintended consequences, and I think we're starting to see some of those now, and they'll come out in the discussion tonight. And on top of that, we've already talked about these growing expectations um, around a carbon market, the amount of funding that's available, um, both at the moment through the carbon and uh, the woodland and peatland codes, but also future payments for ecosystem services, which are being very, very heavily touted by the land sector. Um, so, Scottish Land Commission um, recently, um, very recently published their insights report into the land market. If you've not had a chance to have a look at it, it's, it's really worth a read. Um, but what that's showing is that even poor value agricultural land um, rose in value by 60% in 2021, and that was off the back of a 17.5% rise in the previous year. Um, there's been a record increase in estate sales. Um, we've seen forestry sale values doubling and sales prices at 50% above valuation. And so that's, that's for forestry, um, but carbon income is a further driver over and above that, especially on less productive land. And that's the report also talks about the creation of this dark market. Um, so there's always been off-market sales, as we know, um, in, in, in all um, property transactions. But now there's an increasing number, um, over 50% of sales of this type of asset in Scotland are off-market. Um, and how does that reflect, particularly for communities, but for Scotland as a whole, on a country that prides itself as being open and democratic and transparent and fair, when huge swathes of the country's land, with the power and privilege that we know land ownership confers, can be traded in secret and with no controls or knowledge on who the purchasers are. That hugely impacts on local communities. So, you know, you may be a tenant of that landlord, you may live next to that landlord, and what they do has a massive impact on your life. Um, so knowledge of who they are and how that land is being transacted is, is really important. We're also seeing the changing nature of buyers. So again, the Land Commission report talks about in the last year, 50% of all purchasers were either corporates, investment funds or charitable trusts. So why is all this an issue? I've already mentioned the problem of the dark market, but it's also the perpetuation of the narrative arc of what Scotland's rural land is used for. So there's always been, for the last 200 years or so, we don't want to look backwards, we want to look forward, but it is part of this arc of an extractive industrial scale exploitation of Scotland's land assets. So it was sheep, sorry Dave, um, <laughs> um, and then it was deer, and then it was wind, and now it's timber, and in the future it will be carbon. Local people, you know, that might be individual farmers or individual purchasers, as well as communities, can't get a foot in the door. And they're not able to share in that wealth that's being created. And it concentrates these new forms of income and wealth in the hands of the already wealthy and powerful. And also, it's channeling even more public subsidy into these hands, which I personally find particularly galling. 
And when we see what communities can do when they have land-based wealth, so um, uh, what you mentioned on the chair of the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust, they're, they're um, celebrating their 25th year of ownership this year. You know, they build affordable housing, they develop their own renewables, whether that's wind or hydro. They build local schools, they build the local doctor's surgery, you know, they provide tourism infrastructure, um, they use their renewable income to reinvest in their communities. There was a really interesting report last year by Aquaterra that showed that community-owned renewables generates 34 times more income and wealth for the local community. So when you're looking at the really important principle of community wealth building, which the Scottish Government is, is subscribing to, that's absolutely the best way of bringing wealth into that community and stopping it being extracted. So quite often, a lot of these projects will talk about, oh, well, there's going to be tourism, you know, there'll be jobs. But those jobs are low-paid, seasonal jobs. And any of you that follow the housing market will know that a low-paid seasonal tourist worker cannot get a house in the Highlands or indeed the Lowlands for love nor money. So what do we need to do? Um, Scotland's carbon, like all of Scotland's natural resources, should belong to Scotland's people. We should devise systems of ensuring that income from carbon generation are shared fairly, especially when recognising the vast majority of the income to achieve the net zero outcomes from that carbon are actually funded through public subsidy. We need a strengthened land rights and responsibility <coughs> statement to ensure that all landowners have to consult effectively with local people on their plans for land. And we need transparency in the market, which I've already mentioned. There's going to be a new Land Reform Act in this Parliament um, and there's um, a proposal for a public interest test um, and when these transactions occur, uh, transactions over a certain scale should be subject to a public interest test to ensure that the ongoing ownership and use of that land is in the public interest. We've already touched upon it, but carbon sellers, um, whoever they are, whether they're communities, and we've sold carbon um, from our woodlands on the Isle of Egg, we need to ensure that there are really high standards of due diligence on the eventual purchaser. And there are some good standards out there, such as what Forestland Scotland do. And carbon schemes need to be subject to an enforceable management plan that reflects the other potential social, cultural and economic values of that land, and, and Dave's mentioned that already, and to ensure that local people are able to play an active role in developing the plan and sharing in the benefits of that plan. Thanks. Elsa, thank you. Can I just ask you a, a quick follow-up on that as well? And say, what role, therefore, do you see for the large corporates? So where you've got companies like Shell buying large pieces of land, is that something which you think is a legitimate part of this process, uh, given with certain safeguards, or do you think it shouldn't be happening at all? Um, I think that, by and large, it shouldn't be happening at all, because we've already got some really um, proactive um, and positive landowners in, that, in this country, and whether that's private or you know, NGO-type trusts like the Woodland Trust or Trees for Life or communities. Um, so I don't actually think there is a role for Scotland's land to be used to offset the emissions of that type of organisation. Um, so um, I think if, if that continues, which it probably will until there's a change in the legislation, um, then we need much stronger safeguards to protect those sort of local social, economic and cultural opportunities uh, for local people to make sure that they can properly share. Um, because we've seen some corporate interests coming in and, and, and taking over several thousand acres and they're going to plant several thousand acres of Sitka. Not many people want that. Um, and that's a huge change in the landscape and in the use of that land. And we know that the way that the carbon market works, that's it tied in then for decades, and that is not going to change. Um, so 
Okay, let, let me come to Stephen Young and uh, Stephen ask you a similar question in terms of what are the trends which you see. Uh, the Scottish land in the States represents the interests of the, of the landowners and the people like that. Um, what do you see is the right way forward for this? And particularly, how do you see that this can be done in a way that addresses some of the issues and challenges, challenges which Elsa has set out? Yeah, and thank you for uh, inviting me tonight. Apologies in advance for my voice being croaky. I've done too many of these events in the past couple of weeks. Um, so <clears throat> you might be unlucky and I won't be able to speak. But um, yeah, we, we um, are a membership organisation for land managers throughout Scotland of all kind of sizes and scales. We've got, we've got members who are private owners, we have NGOs and we have community groups as well. Um, and all aspects of land management and rural business they're involved in. Um, yeah, it's a it is a challenge at the moment. I think there's there's ways of uh, there ways of dealing with it. I think there's a I think as Dave said, there's a huge amount of pressure coming onto land right now. We've got um, you know you know pressure to, to deal with environmental issues, sequester carbon. We, we've got pressure to produce affordable nutrition. We've got pressure to create jobs, create affordable housing, and have that rural economy keep that moving. We've also um, got to provide amenity, which everyone's enjoyed over the past couple of years more than they than they thought they ever would. So I mean. My analogy of it, which is, is usually pretty poor, is, uh, is it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. And then we have to get all these things moving together to create success. And, and what we have sometimes is, is different people trying to line up different colours. And what you do is if you only come at it from one angle, you wreck everything else. So I, I think we have to be really careful not to judge success in land management through a single metric, which currently is net zero. And, and arguably it is doing more, more harm than good in, in some places as well. Um, in terms of those trends, um, yeah, we are seeing land markets. Uh, they are going up. It's uh, we, we were we welcomed the the land commission's report that, that they did. Um, within that, it, it is a snapshot, and it would be really good to see that kind of extrapolate to see what the, what the real trends are. Obviously, we're coming out of of COVID between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. So there was a bit of uh, pent up demand there. There was there was various different things there as well. So so how do we do we see what those trends are? In terms of the drivers for that, I think uh, I, I think a lot of them are pretty clear. Government policy is driving quite a lot of this. We um we, we see um, from from my point of view um, and just. Full disclosure: I'm a partner in a family dairy farm as well, and we we, we look at these options too. And we, you look at uh, peatland, and you look at forestry, and you've got a very clear mapped future for what you want to do, and very a lot of certainty. When you look at agriculture and food production, you've got very very little to go on. So if you were going to invest money, which way would you go, and how would you invest it? And it's probably not agriculture right now. Although we need to try and see some of that. We're also seeing there. Uh, you know, you know, tourism has been has been really hit hard over the past couple of years as well. So, in, in a way, that forestry in peatland is that safe haven for money. And when there's uncertainty in markets, people tend to head for for land and gold. So, how do we create certainty in other land uses to allow that to happen? Um, <clears throat> but yeah, the, the other thing in terms of government policy is there's a recognition that we need, I think, twenty billion pounds worth of private investment is required. We, you know, we, the public purse cannot afford to do it on its own. So, how do we bring that finance in, but not lose full control to, to external finances, uh, finance as well? So, it really, it's about um, balancing interests. I would say making sure that we we don't stall planting and restoration where it needs to happen. As Dave said, getting the right tree in the right place and restoring peatland where we need to do that. So we don't stall that by making it uneconomic. But at the same time, how do we deliver more benefit back to communities? And there are some, excuse me, um, there are some benefits already, as mentioned, in jobs and 
and rural economy, but we could probably do more there. But it's it's a really tricky balancing act to do. And I think part of the question was looking at um, you know what happened with wind, and, and wind is very different from from carbon credits, and that it's something that's sold and then you're done with it. If you're producing carbon credits, you've got a contingent liability for a very long period of time, so it's not a cash influx at the start which is then available to be split up we, we still don't know the full costs of some of these forestry and peatland projects because they're not you know they'll never be finished they won't probably be finished in my lifetime so it's understanding that and understanding the income flows i think there's more work could be done in terms of the dynamics of public funding in it as well for so some projects which are commercially viable maybe we should have a, a reduced public funding that or no public funding in some areas but there will always be some elements of it smaller scale projects which will need public funding so it's i, I think more thought could go into how that is managed and how public money is used to pump prime in that respect, enable things to happen, but not be used for projects which are commercially viable without it. So, um, so yeah, I think that there's a lot there to kind of go through, and it, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not coming with a huge amount of answers in this because <laughs> we are quite uh, quite fresh, and it's, you know it's easy to point out the problems, which is probably what I'm doing just now. But but I think there's uh, it's one of the things we're looking to do is get people around the table, really look hard at the economics and say, well, where are the opportunities here? What could be done within some of the the projects that are happening? How do we get that mix of enterprises, that that best use of land, and that can happen under a range of models, whether it's private finance, which you know hopefully minimal public finance with, with private owners, of its NGOs, of its um, community groups as well. So um, it, it, it is possible to do, we just need to try and work our way through it. And it's a very, very immature market, all of these. It is developing and we're trying to kind of pick our way through it as quickly as possible. But, but what I would say, and, it, and it's back to something that also said, you know, all landowners have responsibilities as well um, in terms of the land rights and responsibilities. No matter what they do with land and no matter who they are, they have got those responsibilities. So we have to encourage best practice in, that as, in those areas as well in terms of community engagement and making sure communities are as uh, as, as open as we can. Um, just to pick up another point, um, he also was talking about that transparency. Well, we have got the Register of Scotland and we've now got the Register of Controlling Interests coming as well. So there will be a, a, a much higher degree of uh, transparency within that and it's something that our members are, have welcomed generally and um, so we will have that full transparency although it's pretty much there now and um, but, uh, but yeah it's just looking at models looking at ways where communities can work within that and so we, we will have to leverage a lot of that corporate funding because it's required to, to let us do what we want to do but just the best mechanism for doing that we've probably not quite got yet. <coughs> Stephen, thank you very much. You, you mentioned there in passing onshore wind. I think one of the criticisms which is some short, sometimes made about onshore wind is that the commercial beneficiaries are big companies and landowners, and that a community will ha have them positioned uh, in or around them, uh, and they don't see a direct benefit. There's supposedly a sort of advisory £5,000 per installed megawatt, but that doesn't necessarily come through, and occasionally it's just a, a check every couple of years to local girl guides. How do we ensure that we don't look back in 20 years' time and say in relation to carbon storage, carbon, uh, carbon credits, that it has happened in the same way and it's been remote landlords and it's been people not within the communities who really benefited from the investment which has gone in? I think there are quite a lot of parallels in a number of different ways in terms of people who are early in, in wind as well, and particularly some landowners, got a really bad deal because they thought they were doing a good deal at the time. Mm. What looked like a good deal turned out to not be a very good deal. Um, so again, that was a maturing market and people have to, to learn quite quickly. And and to be honest, there was a degree of the Wild West in some of the wind, uh, the wind markets. And there's a little bit of that in carbon markets as well. That's one of the, a lot of time I spend with our members is saying, look, make sure your eyes are fully open in this, fully understand your liability. And I think that 
that didn't happen in winter to a certain extent. The market then matured and things got a bit better. But, uh, but yeah, no, there are opportunities. As I say that the, the difference there is that contingent liability, which you don't have when you produce energy, which you do have with... Uh, discussion and questions. We will have a raving mic which will go around, which is sanitised before each person uh, is given it. Um, uh, how do we get a just transition out of this? Um, how do we do all of this in a way that addresses some of the concerns and the issues which have already been uh, raised in the course of our discussions this evening? Um, and what is the best way of doing this in a way that will deliver that just transition? I'm going to take the liberty of tactically not quite answering that question to start with, um, but opening the debate and hoping that a roaming mic doesn't fall out the sky like the light fitting does um, later in the discussion. I also want to set the scene and say who I am and who I am not. So I am an energy justice and just transition scholar here at the university. Um, I am someone that is fundamentally invested in the Scottish landscape as a, a Highlander, someone that grew up in a rural setting, someone that has a brother, I have da danger in saying that, um, who works as a keeper um, and has just bought a croft and someone who lives uh, surrounded by a shooting estate and engages in very, very small-scale farming myself. So it's really a debate that's personal and academic for me. I'm not an expert in carbon offsets, and I'm not an expert uh, in land reform. So what I'm seeking to do is introduce this kind of just transition notion and then to throw on the table some provocative statements um, and watch your faces either squirm or agree um, is my intention. I should also say that I, I much prefer llamas to sheep. Uh, I just think they're effectively lanky sheep, and <laughs> we should just bear that in mind in all discussions. <laughs> um, so just to go back to the history of the just transition, to reflect on where that language came from and what it might mean in this setting, I think if we look at its origin, it goes back to a very different context. It stems for me from labour environmentalism in the United States, from a concern around chemical processing plants, unequal distributions and unequal recognition. Um, um, and a sense that things fundamentally had to be better, but also that that was strongly related to a labour force, that it was strongly related to a question of energy transitions that were happening and to particular sectors of society. That therefore had a sense that, you know, it meant rights and protections, it meant employment opportunities, it meant making sure that the new jobs that emerged were ones that were equally rewarded and that were equally rewarding. And it also becomes a piece of language that then starts to say, well, we're not just concerned about who we're taking on this journey, but who we can bring in in that process. So it's about diversifying the uh, participation in the future that we create, about upskilling, reskilling and <clears throat> effectively gaining new entrants. And in all of that, that is heavily weighted towards a normative set of ideals. There's a suggestion fundamentally that the future that we are creating is not just a low carbon one, but a better version, um, a low carbon and a more socially just one. But I don't think there's agreement on what those normative underpinnings look like, or at least not explicit enough discussion on what it might mean. So when we're having this debate around the table, I think we're taking that piece of language, extending it to new applications, extending it to new groups of society, um, and to place it in a land-based context where we're talking almost um, about community enrichment and wider social benefit, but where we really need to reflect more precisely on the definitions, the clear set of expectations that we have, the principles that we're working towards, and an indication of whose views are and are not represented. 
And I am here particularly concerned about, um, yes, this, this motion towards environmentalism, this concern for community benefit, but also the slightly unpopular people, um, people like keepers who are very controversial in our modern society, but absolutely have to be part of this because they are the ones who are at risk of losing their jobs. I promised I would throw a few controversial things on the table, so here cometh. Um, <laughs> the first one is around semantics. I think we there need the semantics of the just transition to unpack what that means, but we can also really problematize this language of green lairds. I don't think the word green is provocative in that setting, I think the word lairds is. And that really gets to the notion of this as being a land reform debate, not just an environmental one. And that's a much bigger, broader piece of Scottish context that we need to remember and discuss, and to consider whether we're using the right language in fostering a healthy and reasonable debate. I also really worry, as the other panelists have mentioned, that this is something that's increasingly polarised. There's a them versus us, there's a corporate versus others, but I think that that hides and doesn't do justice to a wide spectrum of um, different ranges of operation within um, that dualism. <clears throat> that includes, controversially, um, the idea that some of the big landholding entities such as the John Muir Trust and the RSPB, whilst well-intentioned, may actually not be the most environmental bodies that are out there either, and may do very controversial things and have uh, land practices that we discuss in my first year of teaching, so please do come along. Um, my other point is around transparency. I know that there are calls within this panel and within the wider discourse in this area for transparency around uh, the extent to which these land sales are happening, to whom they are being sold, uh, to have kind of public accountability over the nature and the size and the scale of all of this. But I also think that there needs to be a measure on the flip side of community land ownership capabilities and expectations. Are we talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of acres for corporate giants versus a much, much smaller subset that is reasonably in the control of community groups? Or are we talking about something equal and how do we measure what community ambitions are? Almost done with my provocations. No one's squirmed yet, which is wonderful. Um, <clears throat> panaceas. I would question uh, the extent to which community ownership is inherently more just. I think it's something that we normatively perceive as being, but that it also might have um, difficulties within it, that we need oversight, we need clear guidance on land management, and we need cooperation through all of these sectors and across these community groups because fundamentally some of them will not be capable of doing some of the things that we need. That includes uh, practices of deer management, for example. Is that something that reasonably a community group is going to take on board if they're protecting the trees that they are planting or is that something that perhaps is the domain of large landholders? My brother would uh, pat me on the back for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's important to remember that these questions of just transition here are fundamentally tied to the Scottish landscape, but exist in a global dynamic. We are, to some extent, planting a Scottish forest, um, which would you know, have enormous gains in terms of Scotland's environmental progress and carbon offsetting, but it might also create a landscape where we import and where we create externalities for these um, fuel, wood fuel resources. And we need to remember, therefore, that there are liabilities for our own communities um, and for a global spectrum of people who are all facing a climate emergency. 
As has been mentioned, I don't think um, offsetting is the ultimate question here. I think not emitting in the first place is, uh, so we should constantly reflect on that. And fundamentally, that the tension is around the difference between large-scale rapid climate action and what communities can viably do quickly enough to meet the challenges that are being made. And so I really do think that everything has to be part of this, um, as long as we hold it in a participatory and open way. Kirsten, thank you very much. I'm not going to ask you a supplementary because I think you've ended up with so many different issues out there. <laughs> it's the right moment to sort of open it up to our audience and to give them the chance to comment on these issues as well. Um, I'm going to go first of all to Catherine Pollard, who I'm very much hoping is here. Um, she was the policy and practice lead at Scottish Land at Scottish Land Commission. Um, that, uh, Catherine, at, at the back there, we can have a, mic a microphone to Catherine. There is a button, yes. Thanks very much. Um, thank you for all these really enlightening and, and uh, provocative um, opening statements. So I'm from the Scottish Land Commission. We're a non-departmental public body, for those that don't know, that is delivering a programme of land reform to ensure that the way in which land is used, owned and managed is fair and productive and accountable to the people of Scotland. So I guess my question um, really looks at how we balance public and private interests in all of this. And there's a, a very heated land market, everything's moving very quickly. And I want to know what needs to happen now to ensure that we, um, that we harness the opportunities, that we can create wider benefits for communities of Scotland, um, but also the environment. We haven't really talked much about nature tonight. I'm, I'm really keen to know how, uh, what your views are on, on what needs to be done now to ensure that we can actually use this as an opportunity to deliver a well-being economy and a just transition. Dave, let's start with you. Yeah, um, that encapsulates some really big questions. Um, I mean, I guess one of the things in terms of where we need to get to, because things are moving fast, and I think um, well, St Stephen talked about how there were mistakes in the past where some folks sold their land expecting a certain thing and actually locked that land into something which didn't deliver what they were hoping for and didn't deliver for the community. So uh, we need to move fast as well. And I, um, this is just my own point of view of being quite a, uh, a control freak and interventionist. I think we need some regulation of the voluntary carbon market and there needs to be, so the Woodland Carbon Code's really good, Peatland Carbon Code are great, but actually in terms of the the way you could potentially abuse those to to end up in a hypothetical situation where you've got a landowner who basically has sold all their carbon futures, so this PIUs, um, uh, at a price where, say, so, sold at a loss and that kind of arbitrage that's going on at the moment because they're not aware, so that there's that capacity bit, that the market needs to have more regulation. So we're not seeing... We're not saying everyone is under pressure, but a lot of folk, I think, are feeling, um, is that a good price? And, and you know, and the price is going up. So people are, are, are kind of are selling up and that's quite worrying, but probably selling themselves short, arguably. Um, and there's also that, that kind of, that check and balance in terms of if you are buying up that farm, um, I think there's a responsibility, yes, you're doing it for timber or carbon, but there's a responsibility for that community and that should be part of the deal. It's a bit like Stephen was saying in terms of when we, we, we do a carbon deal, 
we actually have to honour it for 100 years potentially, certainly 50. Um, it should be a similar kind of commitment for the buyer in terms of that, that community um, uh, support, that that communication and voice uh, of all the neighbours and the community that that's part of. And I, I don't see that in the regulation for the voluntary market at the moment, excuse me, a bit of fluff. Um, and I think we need that rapidly because it's, like you say, it's such a fast moving space and the money is quite attractive. You know, if you're, we've been through a really hard time, the whole community in, in, in farming, but particularly Upland Farms, you know, uh, we've got uncertainty, like Stephen said, about what rural support is going to be in the future. We all know as a community that it's going to be more focused on this stuff in terms of you know the natural capital and nature-based solutions. But if you are, if you're looking at a, a safe bet at the moment, you might go, well, I'm just going to sell my land, and you know, and I'll get I'll get a good price for it, and that might be quite good for that individual. But for the community, that might lock us into you know um, a real negative um, future. So. So yes, speed is a, it's a, it's an emergency, like Kirsten said, the climate emergency, and it needs an emergency response in terms of what we do, but it needs emergency safeguards as well, so that we don't kind of lock ourselves into big mistakes. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, I, I would agree. With that. I think the market does need a degree of, of regulation there. I mean, there isn't a, a very clear price discovery mechanism even within that market, although all not all carbon is equal because we've got the kind of charismatic carbon side of it as well, what other people are doing, and different people have different uses for it. But I think having that mechanism and more transparency in, in the price of carbon would certainly help both sides understand it. Um, I, I think going back to, to, to Cathy's point there about biodiversity, I think it's really, really vital. I think it does get forgotten in a lot of this because high finance and things can't understand it and it's harder to measure. Um, but I think a lot of that comes back to, and, and I feel we bang on about this a lot in terms of agriculture and forestry is, is integrated land management, making sure that there is a, a place for all different types of land management. And mono, large monocultures of anything are generally a bad thing, rule, rule of thumb. So the more uh, the kind of more uh, mix of enterprises that we can have will create benefits on, on a number of levels. There's inherent benefits around employment and, and community benefit there as well as the kind of environmental and biodiversity benefits. So th th there's a lot to be gained from that, as, as I say. It all comes back to, to understanding what we're trying to achieve. And if we only state that through a 2040 or 2045 commitment, then, then we'll fail on a, a number of other levels. So we have to have different metrics of success for, for land in Scotland. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I was really um, um, no, I, it's a really interesting question. I'm picking up um, uh, Stephen's point about biodiversity and this integrated land management, you know, good landowners are really good at it. Um, and there are great examples in the private sector. Um, and, and I was very provoked by some of um, Kirsten's provocations about <laughs> the capacity of communities, because I would think communities have a huge role to play in integrated land management, because you might have 200 people talking about what they want to see with that piece of land, as opposed to one finance committee of a pension fund or one private owner. Um, so I think they're, 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 they're excellent at that approach about thinking about all the potential um, demands on that land and what's the best way forward to make it sort of financially, economically, environmentally and socially sustainable. So um, I'm always going to be an advocate for that approach, obviously, but I think there's there's other things that we can do. We can look at more collaborative models of ownership. Um, so actually bringing different types of owners together to acquire land and to share some of the benefits and risks of this. Um, and that can be communities with private owners or communities with NGOs. Um, I think we do 
you need regulation in the market, in the carbon market, and I've already mentioned in the land market, and an opportunity to correct now at the start what's happening rather than let it completely run away with itself and then try to catch up. And the, the really interesting statement that the Minister made, the interim statement on the responsible use of natural capital, I think is a good place to start. And I know that the Land Commission had input into that because it's starting to sort of... Um, uh, message where we want the market to go. We do need regulation around it, but I think that does set out what Scotland is expecting to see from its natural capital markets and how we want those used, how we want the benefits of those used. And I come back to your point, Dave, really, I've been advising several communities about selling their um, carbon, and generally my advice is don't do it. <laughs> don't do it now. Wait and see. It's a 100-year commitment. People want securities. Um, you know, it's actually, let's wait and see. And, and Stephen said this as well, it's a really immature market. Actually, if you don't actually need to do it now, just wait and let's just see what happens and what those long-term <coughs> obligations are. Um, so I think there's lots of lessons we can renew learn from renewables and what, what went wrong there and how we can change it. Thank you. Thank you. I think there's a danger here that we're all going to agree. <laughs> um, so I'll attempt to shake things up again. Why not? Um, I would say I don't think there is a situation in the future in which there is a perfect balance between public and private interests. I think inherently in all of these debates there will always be a shifting landscape of polarised opinions, hopefully not as polarised as it is just now, but a shifting landscape in which there are new challenges that we have to face, uh, new governments that come in perhaps, uh, new incentives that are delivered and some that are withdrawn. And so I think this is a shifting landscape and although these measures that we're talking about now with some degree of um, consensus, shall we call it that, um, you know, echo a potential future. It's, it's one in which we have to stay dynamic. I agree that there is a, a need for, you know, increased transparency, as I've already mentioned, around what is happening in terms of purchasing, but also what the community ambitions are. I agree that there's a role for oversight of what responsible carbon investment might look like, um, and therefore greater accountability around um, the fundamentally what's in place and if it's working well and if not why not um, but I also think that we have to have tolerance and acceptance of this conflict that I've mentioned that there are going to be disagreements that there are international responsibilities that these measures fundamentally aren't well um, developed to pay attention to that there are alternative stances that we need a combination of all of these different uh, modes of operation these different types of land management um, and that actually the value added from this comes in a number of different forms. There's a sense here that community buy-in will um, give us particular, I say, normatively oriented outcomes, um, a sense of ownership, a sense of benefit, a sense of engagement with the landscape. But also fundamentally, the benefit here for some communities will simply be that there is less of a car carbon or climate threat. And that has value in and of itself. And that needs to be something that we are open to as a potential. So, yes. Okay, well, we've got about half an hour for <coughs> questions and discussion, and I want to get as many people in as I possibly can. I'm going to start now taking the uh, questions in pairs, and, and I'm also ask the panellists to keep your answers brief, and if you don't want to answer every question, don't feel obliged to do so. Um, and if you just want to say, yes, I agree with everybody else, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and switch the projector off. It sounds like sort of a high-pitched noise, which I think it might be the projector. Yeah. So I'll just see. It's a warning that something else is about to fall from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not the projector. I have a question for the mountain. 
University of Strathclyde. Okay, from Malcolm Coombe from University. Just up there. And then, uh, <coughs> then the hand up at the back has been up from the beginning. So. Okay, um, thanks very much. Um, like Matt, I work at the University of Strathclyde. Thanks very much to the organisers and the panel for putting this together. Um, I also sit on the Scottish Land Fund Committee, so if this sounds like a leading question, it's not being asked in that capacity. Um, question is, do you think the current legislative land reform or other tools give uh, local residents and communities a fair crack of the whip when it comes to getting involved in sustainable projects? Okay, and then we'll go to the person right at the back. Hi, uh, I am in financing industry. I have some uh, rather radical comment. Uh, how would you counteract my argument that um, this modern days rewilding um, to clear away grazing land to countries is some sort of modern day highland clearance? Um, um, buying um, by a uh, voluntary offset is very similar to the Catholic Church in Middle Ages selling indulgence. And also because big corporates, they have to, uh, in the regulatory offset regime, they have to buy offset, they're going to pass on the extra cost to consumer, driving up green, green inflation. So how would you address this concern? And my second question is, why is agroforestry and agriculture sector inherently uh, not profitable that need subsidies and carbon credits to keep them afloat. Um, that's not how it's meant to be. Um, so uh, one concern and uh, one question. Yeah, my view about carbon offset is um, we would genuinely purchase like um, genuine uh, like carbon credit that preserve Amazon forest, that is like a genuine um, credit that will benefit um, the globe as a whole rather than um, buying cheap um, voluntary offset that will promote consumerism, just make you feel good, spend more, do more harm to the environment. So how would you address my concern? Thank you. Okay. Um, Who would like to start? Elsa? Can I start on Malcolm's question? <laughs> um, land reform. Yeah, I, I, the Scottish Government have been great and, and there's a lot of political support for community ownership um, and there's been several acts um, which have given communities rights and there, there's new community right to buy rights um, which came in sort of four or five years ago. Um, yes, they, they exist. Uh, and they have been helpful, um, but I think the issue, the real concern now is that the market is moving too fast and there is this whole issue about transparency. If things aren't even coming to the market, communities don't know they're available, don't know there's an opportunity to bid and not able to speak to the owner and before you know it, it's gone, it's sold. Um, so I think, yes, those rights do exist and they're a really important backstop. I think, you know, I, I'm sure Stephen would agree there's a, there's a protocol um, in place to try and encourage communities to acquire our assets by negotiation, not to use those statutory rights if at all possible, but they are an important backstop. But I say at the moment, the way that the market is moving, and particularly values, and you will have seen it on the Scottish Land Fund, you know, forestry assets, if a community is interested in a forestry asset, um, it, you know, goes through the process of doing the feasibility, etc, etc, all the engagement. By the time it's done that, the value has gone up again by another 10-15%, and actually it's almost impossible for communities to keep up, and the Land Fund, even though the Land Fund's being increased in value, to keep up with that, so 
I think the rights are really important. They're, they do need tweaking, um, and hopefully there'll be an opportunity to do that in the next act. Um, but um, the way the market is at the moment, it's, it, it's making it really difficult for communities to acquire this type of asset. Jim. Thanks. Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of questions in, the, in there <laughs> over things. Like, yeah, I mean, our community's getting a fair crack. I mean, the, the right to buy in terms of that transparency off-market sales, if, uh, if a community is registered an interest, then there wouldn't be an off-market sale. But they would be informed of that, so they, they have got that. But I think a lot of it comes down to risk and reward. You know, who's taking the risk in this? Where does the reward sit? How do we um, balance that risk? And, and, you know, and, and, and like it or not, finance is part of this. We have finance has to play a role. So how do we um, create a fair reward for a fair risk without having an imbalance on both sides? Um, yeah, in terms of the, the other question and food security wise, agriculture inherently not profitable. That is that is a major problem, um, not just in Scotland but UK. There's there's arguments around you know is food too cheap? But it's very difficult to argue that that people should pay more for food if people are struggling. You know, so we have to have to think about that. But yeah. That, I think that actually gets the nub of quite a lot of the, the trees versus food conversation is that inherently agriculture isn't profitable enough so it loses out to trees too often where it possibly shouldn't and we, and we see some areas planted so that is a, a fundamental issue there. Yeah, I mean, just on the offset one, so I go, so Charles talked about the Greenpeace hierarchy about you cut your emissions and offsets are the last thing you you actually do in your hierarchy I completely agree and so actually so going back to your shell example I was thinking about that what if shell came to my wee farm and said look Dave just take half your land and we'll give you loads of money and you know we'll, um, we'll take it. have your sheep on our poster <laughs> I'd be tempted. what I would say was come back when you've done your scope one two three emissions fundamentally looked at those reduce them as far as you can, come back then and we'll have a conversation. But until you've done that, then, you know, you haven't gone through the hierarchy. And I think that is something which um, would change the dynamic quite a bit at the moment because you're looking at everyone, not everyone, a lot of institutions, including some of the energy companies, having net zero targets, which look great to their shareholders and to their kind of public publicity campaigns. But actually, a lot of that is contingent on offsets, which, and land use offsets, which actually are, going to, are distorting the market, not just here, but globally, and could actually delay much more effective action in terms of cutting their direct emissions, whether it's extraction or whether it's the burning. So I think that the, it was a really good question, I think, just in terms of, do offsets have a role? I think they do. But in, in terms of that hierarchy, I get the point that they're a bit like the Catholic Church indulgences in terms of how we can use them as individuals, but they are part of the market solution um, in terms of carbon sequestration, but they're way down the list of priorities for most emitters. We are a long way from net zero. <laughs> it's dangerous to ask for short answers, I think. Um, <laughs> the bit that I'm going to pick up on was the, the comment around rewilding and the highland clearances is the thing that stood out to me. You know, there's an argument that carbon offsetting is, is a form of clearance uh, to some extent. I think these are parts of a much bigger trend and structural um, change in rural livelihoods over a number of years that exactly intersect with your point around uh, the profitability of agriculture that intersects with um, exactly this question of lairds and how unpopular that notion is and with some of these um, rural industries as being increasingly um, divisive ones including around gamekeeping and, sh and sporting interests. 
So I think that needs to be held in the context of a, a wider reimagining of what it is that we're trying to do for our rural communities. We can see in the context of COVID some opportunities, some of this remote working, which I hope we retain because I don't want to move back to Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> and there are also lessons here from other um, country contexts fundamentally that needs to be part of our discussion of what does a just transition look like does that refer to a whole scale revival of rural communities and livelihoods and is that the normative goal that we're striving towards okay we've got i think two questions side by side in the middle there and then we'll come to the back after that so one green one in pink Uh, and if you could say who you are and if you represent an organisation. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm Ewan Allinson. I'm a sculptor and drystone waller doing a PhD at the moment at Dundee and launching this summer a three-year project with a team of researchers uh, working with the Scottish Gamekeepers Association. Thanks. <laughs> and looking at what it will be that you lose in a place when by only accounting for natural capital you end up depleting the cultural, social, and intellectual capital that is embedded in workers who have this granular knowledge of that landscape without which your decisions will be flawed. Um, they feel very threatened. And gamekeepers are a sector of the rural working class. And we should be concerned at the loss of that amount of value that they and hill farmers and crofters and people who work the land. It's a national asset that there is no accounting for within natural <coughs> accounting. And big companies should be alerted to the fact that their investment in natural capital is at risk by depleting. That's the argument I would make to them. Okay. So, so yeah, and ultimately, <clears throat> I've been working with a, farm, a rural partnership in, in Ireland where they have developed something called locally-led governance. So agri-environment schemes, and this came from a farmer and an ecologist in the Burren in the early 90s, and this is developed into a phenomenon in Ireland where agri-environment schemes are designed and the decision-making is owned by a local partnership. So it's, it's that thing of relinquishing the levers of decision-making that are held in boardrooms, in policy circles. Relinquish that decision-making, the ownership of that decision-making to local governance partnerships who, who hold those levers. That's a big ask. Thank you very much. And then uh, next door to you. Hi. Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Hield. I'm a forester. We also work the land. There's been very little mentioned tonight about public ownership of land. And I just wondered what the panel think the role of town councils and local authorities are, and whether they can benefit and make use of this carbon finance to improve and extend public ownership of land. Great. Okay, two great questions there. Let's go quickly down the panel. Um, and uh, let's start with you, Jim. Yeah, I mean, the first question, uh, totally agree. 
Totally agree. We can't, you know, we shouldn't just diminish one asset to, to do another one. And my pet hate at the moment is the, is the phrase green jobs, which gets touted around. It's a buzzword. Nobody understands it. Nobody can explain well, not green it. green jobs. It's a terrible <laughs> phrase. It's a terrible phrase. And arguably, you know, the, the ultimate green jobs are, are gamekeepers. It's, it's what they're doing. And, and it's ty- they're tying that environment back to, to um, biodiversity as well. In terms of locally led governance, uh, yeah, interesting concept. I mean, we have got the pilot scheme of regional land use partnerships underway at the moment. Um, now, the jury's out as to how they're going to work, but that's the kind of model that they're, they're looking at, and, and there is potential there if they can get the, 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 again, the balance. This all comes down to balance. It's balance of carrots and sticks, how that works, in it, and working with landowners and working with communities to make things happen rather than kind of um, going one or the other. So that model is hopefully going to be developed in a, in a tangible and, and workable way over the next few years. So I'll tell you, Andrew's question about public-private um, kind of is, is partnership on this, and that, that's kind of got to happen just in terms of the private sector is responsible for a lot of emissions. They've got a lot of progress to make, uh, um, as I was talking about earlier, in terms of reducing those. Um, the public bodies across Scotland and public agencies, some of them are quite large landowners, and actually that partnership could be really effective, not just in terms of investment, but in terms of the safeguarding and actually showing how this works with, with communities. I'd also say for some of our public, public bodies, so um, Scottish Water, a good example, where they're, they're kind of everywhere in Scotland, they are um, a significant landowner, but they also have a lot of tenant farmers, they have a lot of the, they, they're asking, they're looking, they've, they've got a 2040 target for net zero and they've got to deliver on that. And one of the really good things I think they're doing is saying, well, how do we do this? And actually asking the questions like we're asking tonight for their actual, um, their community that actually uses their land. And so learning from them uh, and people like them, the National Parks is another example where you've got these real matrix of different land users, different communities, different, I guess, um, yeah, it's not just the natural capital, but it's the human capital and, you know, actually coming up with something which is well-rounded and place-based, that kind of expertise that we've got in Scotland and the kind of progress and mistakes we've made, they are things which we need to have more of and learn from and do Scotland-wide, but they are the same questions being asked of every metre squared on this planet in terms of uh, land surface. And so where we can get it wrong and tell people we've got it wrong in terms of the past or the present, but also where we've got it right. There's that, comes back to that opportunity at COP26, which the politicians were great at talking about, which is in Scotland, you've got, you've got a, a small nation, which is, is got very ambitious climate targets, which it's really struggling to meet. And it's making lots of mistakes. And one of the best things we can do is share those mistakes and share our learning. Um, so that's, Going back to your question, Andrew, about public-private, I think the, the lessons from that can be great at home, but actually internationally as well. Thank you. Um, it sounds like we should have a chat after it. <laughs> a fascinating contribution. I agree, yeah, it's fundamentally natural and social capital, and this ties nicely to the, the culture and the heritage that we have and why I'm so proud to be from the Highlands. And it's also one of those reasons where land reform is very challenging in trying to divide up some of those um, historical legacies that we live with and why it's so emotive. On this question of 
public ownership, again, I would say that has to be part of this patchwork of a, a set of potential solutions. But what initially concerns me is that in many ways, um, all of this responsibility is being devolved down. It's being localised. And that's fine. That's something that, you know, again, we can normatively agree works well. It represents community benefits, it represents community interests, but it's something that can't happen without substantial support. Support in terms of financing from the Scottish Government for councils that are increasingly squeezed, that have more and more to do with less finance available, and that perhaps haven't grappled with some of these challenges before. And if you think about the geography of Scotland, you know, there will be talents in the Highlands um, for the Highlands and Islands Council that perhaps don't exist in other parts um, of Scotland just by virtue of the nature of the landscape. So I think having that pot of money available and having that oversight and guidance fundamentally has to be part of that. Thanks. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great point that you made really well. And of course, it's that cultural and social value that actually makes places. Um, so um, without that, you know, and I come back to the 5,000 acres of Sitka, there's no social or cultural or emotional or human value to that. Um, so what makes the highlands and the lowlands, the rural areas so special are those characteristics. It's the people that are there. Um, and and the, the, the issue about um, public sector ownership, I, I completely agree um, with Kirsten about local authorities. Authorities, I think their resources are so stretched, both human and financial, that their ability to actually engage um, in this is really difficult. But there are huge public landowners, as we know, Forest Land Scotland, Crown Estate Scotland, Nature Scott, um, the National Parks. Um, and they have got the opportunity to, to develop that world-leading approach as to how this should happen uh, on those types of assets. And to be fair, I think they are doing it. I think they really want to do it. Um, and I think they're being funded to do it. Um, so I've got a lot of faith in that there will be good practice um, that can be shared. But as we've said, this all takes time. Now, Matt has had a number of questions which are coming through the app. So I'm going to hand over to Matt just to read those out. Uh, there are four more hands I've seen up, which I hope I'll get to uh, to afterwards. So, um. yeah, thank you, Charles. Okay, so uh, we've got plenty of questions through the app. Um, I won't get around to them all, but I've tried to group them together as best as I can. So there are three questions, okay, um, and feel free to pick and mix. Uh, the first is, and I, I knew we would get this tonight, what do we mean by community? Um, and a more targeted question within that is how do we manage power and tensions within community? We're referring to this as a homogenous unit. <laughs> we know not, not all, to, uh, no two communities are necessarily alike, and also there are there is a great deal of diversity within a single unit uh, that we call community. Two, Dave, I suspect this may be over to you initially. What natural risks? might be associated with carbon storage. I'm thinking back to uh, Storm Arwen that we had in November, um, and much of the damage we saw there to, to Woodland. Um, and also, uh, and finally, I should say, lessons from offsets abroad. Uh, the question refers to uh, the RED program, and in relation to many of the offsets that we've seen in other countries, like Africa, or continents. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's all from the app. I, I shall uh, sit myself down and let Charles okay. Well, if I could pick up the community question, I can't answer about international offsets. So what do we mean about community? I think what we've talked a lot about today is about local places. It's about geography. It's about what's important about that landscape. Um, so to me, when we talk about community, we talk about communities of place. So people that are culturally linked and um, by place, geographically, geographically linked by place. Um, and community landowners, that's how they're defined. Um, so they can define their place as something really small. It can be two streets in 
an urban area or something really big, it can be a whole island like <coughs> egg. So it's allowing the community to define themselves what their community is. So I think that's really important. And yeah, managing power and tensions within communities. Well, they're all people. So we all know people don't sometimes get on and everybody has a different view. It comes to this issue of if integrated land management. You've got to listen to 200 people's views of what they want to see happen with that asset and try and come to a conclusion that satisfies as many people as possible. Um, so actually being on a community board is really difficult. You know, I'm, I'm really lucky on egg in that people on egg generally have a shared vision of how they want egg to develop. And therefore it's quite they would say it's easy, but it's relatively straightforward to take projects forward. But I've worked in other communities where people don't have that shared vision. Some people want wind turbines, some people don't want wind turbines. And actually, when you have the power to make that decision, whether you're having a wind, power, a wind turbine or not, it's actually then really difficult. Um, and I think a lot of community landowners need to be hugely congratulated for being able to move forward with decisions and projects that, you know, other sectors are not able to do um, and that's because they have sort of that local governance you know if you really hate what your board are doing this year you can kick them out next year and put you know so everybody can be a member of a community trust and i think it's that local really localized democracy um which helps with some of that decision making thanks Kirsten, i can see you nodding <laughs> nodding and shaking at the same time very confused um <laughs> yeah i particularly on the question of community and how we mention these tensions, I think that comes back to one of my first um, interventions in saying that actually communities aren't necessarily inherently just. Um, they're, you know, when we're talking about this uh, notion of the just transition, you can think about it in terms of things that have to be physically distributed, but there are also um, elements to which it refers to participation and refers to recognition. Um, and therefore making sure that within that so-called homogenous community, there are opportunities for everyone to be heard and first structures to be in place where uh, people can fundamentally vote on what uh, is the right outcome. So I really do question that language also and I question um, the notion that community ownership is a bit of a panacea. When referring to local places I agree, you know, they can be defined in that way but there are also <clears throat> risks and challenges that span those local places that have to be acknowledged. There are deer that walk across them for example um, that have to be managed and there is this overarching question, as I've mentioned before, of communities elsewhere, to which we also theoretically have some kind of justice obligation, particularly in terms of climate risks. So although that definition works for some groups, I think it also needs to be constructively challenged throughout their own action. Right. Yeah. Yes, I'll quickly answer the, the, well, hopefully quickly, answer the question about, about climate risks, I suppose, for, for nature-based solutions. And there are those, and, and this will lead into the second part of the answer or the other question. So that permanence question is one that needs to be asked of every project in terms of how resilient is, is it going to be to pest disease, fire, <coughs> uh, big storms. Um, you'll see in, the, in the, the Woodland Carbon Code, and certainly if you become part of one of those schemes that 20% um, of your credits go into a, a kind of holding pot to give you an insurance against all of your trees burning down. Um, so there needs to be that kind of um, that kind of buffer built in and that permanence issue is always there with what is essentially different forms of label carbon going through to recalcitrant, but they can be released. And so um, that, uh, that is something that, that has to be factored in actually if we think about where we are at the moment in terms of that carbon stock of Scotland and where it could get to there's still a lot of 
not more, a lot more carbon we can lock out of the atmosphere, even with those issues of um, of uh, severe weather events, of having to provide food, etc. Linked to that, so permanence is one of those Cancun save cards I mentioned. This is linked to the question about overseas sequestration and, and reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation projects, red for, for short. Um, and there is a bit of a litany of projects that maybe you paid for 10 years ago, maybe uh, as, as five years ago, or helped pay for, which have not delivered on permanence. So the trees all died. Uh, they've not delivered in terms of additionality, for instance, so they would have been planted anyway. Um, and probably most importantly, there's that issue of leakage that, yes, you paid for your tree to be planted and it was planted and it's still there. But what it did was put pressure on the wood down the road. It wasn't protected, so that was cut down to reduce um, the food or whatever it was uh, that the land use change was driving in the area. So those Cancun safeguards, although they're high level kind of uh, principles, I think they apply here as well. You know, if we are going to put time, effort, money, people's livelihoods, um, you know, linked <coughs> into nature-based solutions, it needs to be permanent, it needs to be additional, uh, if it's certainly uh, using public money, um, and it use, needs to avoid those leakage issues of whether it's down the road or if it's our food production ending up overseas, so we have to import the same food, and actually the impact on the atmosphere is is no better or, or potentially even worse, then this would have failed. But at least we do have, it's going back to that learning from mistakes, we've made some mistakes on this in the past, we certainly can't afford to repeat those in the future. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to take on the international carbon question, certainly. Um, <clears throat> but just going back to the communities not being um, homogenous in their, in their view, I think this, this links back to public interest and the, and the theme of public interest, like who decides what's in the public interest. You know, arguably a, a large Sitka plantation, which is, uh, which is meeting, you know, government targets which are attracting public funding is in the public wider public interest because it's doing a lot of the things that we want it to do in terms of locally again if that local group is not clear and are not in a, in a full agreement as to what they want who then decides whether you pass or fail for want of a better word that public interest test so that's one of those you know who is the public in that respect is it big public is it little public and then how do we come to agreement and who gets to make that that judgment and there's so many variables within that and so many different things and there'll be so many demands on that which could be problematic very good now i've seen five more hands and i want to get all of them in because i hope you'll bear with me if we just run a few minutes over so everybody gets a chance to speak who wants to uh, starting uh, here uh, on the by the aisle, yeah. and then Big going to the person in the green, then right up at the back, and then there. I have a slight concern about the title for this meeting. I would have preferred it if it had been Green Stewardship, because we are stewards for coming generations, as our forebears have been stewards <laughs> over centuries. And I have to say, I'm not a landowner. <laughs> I used to work for an environmental charity. And in, via another charity, I chaired some of the stakeholder meetings and indeed set them up, the land use pilot and the borders. And I've recently chaired three meetings in conjunction with South Scotland Enterprise um, because we are multidisciplinary as an organization and it was therefore thought useful to have groups mixed both by geography east-west across the south of Scotland and north-south within the area, leaving um, 
what one might call niche meetings for them to conduct with NFUSSLE and other interested major stakeholders. From those groups have come um, a universal concern about corporate purchases and the speed and size of them because it's perceived um, that the best profit for the purchaser will come from scale. So that leaves me asking myself, will that in due course have impact on the demographics of rural communities? Also raised was the viability of food production, given the situation in Eastern Europe and the Soviet invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so I think, I wish the word stewardship had been used. The regional land use partnerships quite clearly are going to come with different approaches, <coughs> different governance structures. And they've had an astonishingly complex ask, a difficult ask, on a rather curious timescale. And the one certainly in the south of Scotland is grossly underfunded. It has something like 40% of the funding which the land use pilot had for borders a few years ago. Okay. So the question is... It only works if we ask brief questions. What is the cost of not getting the RLUP and this longer-term stewardship question wrong, because the cost will be catastrophic. Okay, thank you very Mostly much. Mostly to do with food production. Uh, they're in the green top, a little bit further back. Thanks uh, for a fascinating session. Um, I'm Justin Kenrick. Um, if communities are not inherently just, um, but are capable of being just and caring towards each other with the right processes, and if communities are not homogenous, but are capable of being enriched by having diversity, if they have the right process of care towards each other. Are corporations inherently unjust? I think that's starting another entire evening. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the middle of the back. We can come back for our discussion next year and do that. <laughs> Hello, good evening. I'm Alex Bailey, I'm a mapper. I was uh, involved, in, I've been involved in integrated land management, uh, forestry creation, and was part of the team delivering the land use strategy uh, pilot scheme in the borders. And I was wondering again, as a previous person said, um, is this a matter of scale that has caused this, um, this aggro about the green lairs? Um, and as such, should the public purse really be focused on supporting smaller scale applications for afforestation, allowing diversification in farmlands and um, other land uses? And then perhaps more provocatively, I'm suggesting that maybe the large scale ones over a certain threshold are just completely privately financed. And then, Scot uh, and then Scottish forestry have a permission only basis. Uh, and then it's decided by the communities and whether it's permissive. Okay. Thank you very much. And then uh, and towards Hi there, um, my name is Al Stanton. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things. I, I kind of feel there's this tone against big business. Um, 
And it was interesting that, that uh, Dave's comment about sending Shallaway to look at their scope one and two emissions. I, I think that's to do with the compliant markets. I don't think we're here to talk about the voluntary markets. And so I'm also kind of surprised I've not heard the phrase, not in my backyard yet. I thought Stephen <laughs> might have been talking about it, but he, he never actually mentioned it. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering who, who your fight is against. Is it against big industry? Or is it against your average consumer who wants to do a bit more? You know, this is the democratic part of the offset market. It's the voluntary bit. This is all about the guys who, and girls, who drive cars, drink beer, and, uh, and fly on airplanes. Surely there's, there's, there's a bigger argument to be had about that. Very good. And then uh, over here on the right-hand side, let me just pass the mic down at him. My name is Quinton, I'm a student at Strathclyde in Glasgow. And Dave, you mentioned that uh, we should really consider the history and the use of the land. But in Scotland, most of the native forests have been gone for centuries. So where other countries could maybe uh, focus on conservation of uh, their forests, Scotland has really just has to start from scratch, basically. How do we, what could we do to make sure that we really build sustainable <coughs> ecosystems and not just plant trees everywhere, basically. Okay, so a very wide range of questions there, but only about a minute each to answer. So, <laughs> uh, we'll go straight down the line. We'll start with you, Steve. Yeah, um, picking up just a couple of themes there. Um, pejorative terms in, in, in general, um, green layers, um, Corporate's bad, community's not, you know, good. That kind of good, this isn't goodies versus baddies. There's no, you have to judge people on what they do, not who they are. And, and I think if we start getting into pejorative terms, then we just get into this petty argument and, and we go around circles and we don't go anywhere really. So I think we have to move beyond that and say, well, how do we judge what people actually do and what they deliver, not not who they are and there's good and bad on each side and all the rest of it. Um, the other one coming back to the scale issue, um, there are clear benefits of scale. Like, you can't get away from that, particularly when you're talking about biodiversity. There are clear benefits there. So again, it's not small good big bad. It's different things within that. It's a nuanced argument. I know you want to come back, but <laughs> we haven't got time, so we're going to need to move on. Keep, keep it going. I, I think it comes over a glass of wine in a moment. So, so just the point I made earlier on about you know more dynamic funding for different scales and things might solve some of those problems. That's great. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to run straight on to that and the other question just on. So forestry grant scheme is a, is a um, an instrument to help with that. Just in so there are good incentives. Uh, so target areas where you get a higher rate, and so that is a way um, you can deliver some of what you described. That question, which was a great one about where our forests are now, so that, that you know, the context we're working from, um, I think uh, about 5% of our, um, our kind of original forest uh, still exists uh, and is less, yeah, yeah, it is less. It's 5% of our forest is, na is broad, native broadleaf now and a small part of that is um, uh, the original protected areas. But one of the things linked to forestry grant scheme and, and one of the things if you do go for any tree planting in Scotland, whether it's through Woodland Trust or through others, is um, you already can get a lot of help to make sure that the, the trees you're planting are the right tree in the right place, that actually the genetic material is correct as well, so forestry grants can mandate that. Um, and actually, if we look at 
where we're coming from, which is way below the European forest cover. If we get anywhere near that, that will be a lot more trees out there. Um, but again, there's that. This comes back to science. Um, I would say this as a scientist, but actually the tools we've got at our disposable, disposal in terms of land capability assessment, so, so the, you know, what tree will grow in the, right, in the right place now, but also still be happy in 100 years, we now have that science to make a more informed decision. Not planting on deep or shallow peat, I'd argue, is part of that. So um, I'm less I'm less concerned about not knowing what to do because the tools are there. It does come back to those mechanisms. So things like how things are rewarded, particularly from public money, is that rewarding good practice in terms of our genetic stock of trees in Scotland, but also is it taken into account potential um, costs like peatland uh, carbon being lost of its shallow peat. Uh, four super quick things and then some wine, I think. Um, yes, very much agree on the point around the language here, green lairs and green stewards, which is why I raised that at the beginning. I think we can pitch this in a way in which it becomes a divisive debate or we can pitch it in a way that becomes a reasonable and nuanced one. Uh, and certainly reflecting on that language and its origins, which I believe is in the media, um, is a useful way of starting that discussion. I love the questions are on um, are corporations inherently unjust? No. Um, and I very much welcome that interjection uh, to getting us to reflect on why we've taken, you know, some of that assumption um, in having these discussions. The other question around scale, um, that's precisely why I had that um, mischievous intervention at the beginning in asking what can um, communities reasonably take on board? Uh, Scotland is bloody massive, of course, and a lot of this land um, has varying quality. A lot of it's rocky, a lot of it's scree. So are there actually the extent of communities that will take on what a private interest might? No, I don't think there are. Uh, and so we need to have that discussion as well. And then on the final one uh, around, you know, building sustainable ecosystems and what is natural in Scotland and what is not, please come to my first year lectures for science, nature and environment, because we have this debate. I love messing with people's minds, especially when they come into Scotland and see it as this wild, beautiful wilderness, when in fact it's an intensively managed landscape and it has been for hundreds of years. So science, nature, environment. Thank you. Yeah, just a, just a couple of points and, and lots to agree with there. Um, the, the, the good owners, whether they're corporates or communities or privates, um, have a mixed economy. They're not dependent on one particular land use. Um, and that then addresses the social and the cultural issues. So there are people there. There are the demographic issues. The school stays open. You know, there are good jobs for young people to come back to. So there are loads of fantastic examples of, of what can happen in Scotland and does happen um, across huge areas of Scotland. Um, and, you know, I, I'd, I'd come back to your point. Communities actually have massive aspirations to do things, but they're, they're constrained at the moment. Um, so partnerships are absolutely key. Regional land use partnerships, yeah, they seem incredibly complicated to me. I'm, I'm not really sure how they're going to work, but that's not to say we shouldn't try and think about them and how they might work. And, you know, communities, you know, work, you've mentioned sort of deer a couple of times. You know, communities are part of local deer management groups, just as the same as lots of private owners are. You know, so everybody has to manage the deer for all sorts of reasons. Um, so boundaries, obviously deer don't respect boundaries in any sense. Um, so um, so I think that there's, there's really lots of... of 
good practice that we need to be building on. There's lots of political support for this. There's lots of public support for it. Um, the concern, as we've talked about, which is why we're thinking corporates are inherently unjust, particularly in this sense, is that sometimes they don't get all of that. They don't see it, and you need to bang them over the head to get them to see it. And then they say, oh, it's part of our ESG. And think, yeah, but you're still actually not getting it. You need to come out, and you need to speak to the gamekeepers and speak to the crofters and speak to the local school teacher and say, well, if you you know, put all those houses over to holiday homes, that's my school closed. And that's the end of young people ever coming back to this community. So I think that's, that's where this whole corporations are unjust, because they're not doing that. Thank you. Well, we can continue that over a glass of wine. So, um, the, thank you to all of our panel. Thank you to Aidan. It's wonderful to have you all here. I think the spirit with which you discuss these issues, some very contentious issues, issues which we're going to have to be very aware of over the coming years, and wonderful to have them aired in the way you have done this evening. And Aidan, thank you to you and the Business School. Matt, thank you for all of your help. Thank you, all of you, for coming. I just leave you with one thought. I was an MP in the southeast of England. It was the most treed part of the United Kingdom, um, the most treed-covered area, a huge amount of ancient woodlands. And I've been reflecting, what's the difference? We've lived in Scotland for the last 10 years. Why is Scotland so different? And it occurred to me that actually there, nobody owned more than 15, 20, 25 acres, all small ownership. Uh, we had one or two people who owned perhaps 1,000 acres. But for most people, the woodland was something which you just preserved. You didn't cut it down. You didn't harvest it. You saw it as something which was an enrichment of your community. Um, and so maybe that's an, uh, something which we need to reflect on as well. That will obviously be next to the election. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you all. But thank you again to the panel for a brilliant thank you. Thank you. Produced by Bespoken Media.